are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. Acts chapter number 27, we'll begin reading in verse 37. We'll read down through Acts chapter number 28, verse number 3. What I want to share with you tonight is something that God used to help me through the years of ministry. And really, it was a truth that I had to learn and had to come to the realization of. Now, I understand on Sunday night that it's that kind of a crowd. It is a serving kind of a crowd, a working kind of a crowd, faithful people plugged in doing something for God. But I'm convinced that if we're going to finish our course with joy, finish well, be faithful, that we're going to need to get a hold of this simple, I mean, just basic, simple truth tonight. And I'm praying God will use it in your life like He used it in my life. Acts chapter number 27. If you're able to stand, would you stand with me as you read these verses tonight? Verse 37 is where we'll begin. The Bible says, And we were in all in the ship 203 score and 16 souls. So that is 276 people. And when they had eaten enough, now we already know there are no teenage boys on the boat. Say amen right there. They had eaten enough. That never happens that a teenage boy get together. All right. They lightened the ship and cast out the wheat into the sea. And when it was day, they knew not the land, but they discovered a certain creek with a shore into the which they were minded if it were possible to thrust in the ship. And when they had taken up the anchors, they committed themselves unto the sea and loosed the rudder bands and hoisted up the mainsail to the wind and made toward shore. And falling into a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground and the forepart stuck fast and remained unmovable, but the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. And the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim out and escape. But the centurion, willing to save Paul, kept them from their purpose." And commanded that they, by the way, let me say, that was God working. Thank God for His protecting hand, His providence, He takes care of His children. And commanded that they which could swim should cast themselves first into the sea and get to land, and the rest some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship. And so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. Now up to this point, these men have been in a storm, not just a rain shower, but a severe tempest for two weeks. For 14 days or better, they've been tossed in the water, drenched by the rain, blown about by the winds, bludgeoned by the waves, and now the boat breaks into a hundred pieces and they have to swim or float on broken pieces of the boat to the shore of an island. Chapter 28, the Bible says, and when they were escaped, then they knew that the island was called Melita. And the barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire and received us, every one, because of the present rain and because of the cold. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. Now, there's a couple of phrases I want us to notice. I'm not going to preach on the fact that Paul was bit by a snake and the famous phrase in verse 5, he shook it off. Has anybody ever heard a preacher preach on that? You ever heard that before? Well, good, I'll do it tonight. But anyway... And it's just a topical thing. He shook off his burdens. You can shake off your trials. You can shake off whatever it is. I was at a meeting in the Carolinas, and a preacher literally had a rubber snake hidden 
in the pulpit. Nobody knew about it. He had a rubber band wrapped around his head, and while he was preaching, he got to that snake bite part. He stuck his finger in there, got that rubber band wrapped around it, pulled that snake out. Women screamed, and the men screamed louder. I mean, it scared us half to death. So I thought I'd bring my real snake. No, I'm just kidding. But anyway, being from West Virginia, we quit traveling with snakes. It didn't do good for our reputation. But what I want you to notice in verse number two is this statement. They kindled a fire. They've been going for two weeks through a storm, just swam to this island full of barbarous people, and there's a little fire burning there. Their life depends on that fire. It can't go out. If it goes out, they may die. They'll freeze to death. Their hope, their outlook, their faith largely lives as that fire lives. Now, Paul has been in the same storm as the 275 other men. He was drenched by the same rain. He was blown about by the same wind. He was in the same waves, rocked in the same ship. And no doubt, 275 men, so it seems, are laying there in the sand. They're resting. They're kind of wrapped up in their needs at the moment. They're all about them. I mean, they're on the front burner. But Paul, the Bible said in verse number 3, is gathering a bundle of sticks. He's just as tired, just as worn out, just as beaten up. But he's gathering sticks to lay on that fire. Now, let me ask you a really difficult question. What happens when he adds sticks to a fire? Well, I was joking about it being difficult. But anyway, when you add sticks to the fire, it helps the fire to keep burning. Here's what Paul had to do. Paul had to put Paul on the back burner for the sake of others. Paul had to put himself secondary and say, you know what, I can't depend on anybody else to keep this fire burning. I have to have enough character to do what I can do to keep this fire burning. When I would travel the country, and I still get to preach out a little bit now, but people always make the statement. They say, Brother Cooper's here. I pray he'll set us on fire. It's not my job to set you on fire. It's not your job to keep me on fire for God. We have to get to that point where we don't need a pep rally, an amen, an attaboy to serve Jesus. But we need to get to that point where we have some truth in our life that constantly keeps that fire burning. You're not always going to feel like it. You're not always going to want to. So you're going to have to have some things deep down on the inside that keep that fire for God burning. For a little while this evening, we won't be long, I'm going to preach on this thought. The fire is your responsibility. It's your responsibility. Lord, I pray you'd speak to my heart, speak to our hearts tonight, please. We need your power now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I believe the best life that you can live is the Christian life. I'd rather be an old-time Christian than anything I know. I'm glad to be a born-again, blood-bought, heaven-bound with the hammer-down child of God. Amen. Join heirs with Jesus, a mansion on streets of pure gold. There's no better life than the Christian life. But though it is the best life and even a blessed life, can I say the Christian life is not a life that is void of trial and temptation and a myriad of things that if you allow them to, they can absolutely kill or rob you of your fire for God. Now, I like it on fire. I didn't get saved to go to a funeral for Jesus every Sunday. I didn't get sentenced to Christianity. I'm happy on the way, and I like it when it's on fire for God. But can I say, I'm just like you are. I don't roll out of bed and say, hallelujah. I have to cultivate this in my life. There are things that if you allow them to, they will quench your fire for God. Just by way of introduction, for example, the adversary, 
the devil, if you allow him to, he will kill your fire for serving God. Did you know that just as much as there's a real God in heaven that loves you, there's a devil that hates your guts, and he wants to shipwreck your Christian life. And I'm afraid a lot of Christians have allowed the devil to sit on their shoulder, whisper in their ear, and make them discouraged, critical, and bitter. And next thing you know, they're cold on God. You've got to be careful. The devil, the adversary, the accuser of the brethren can rob you of your fire for serving God. I thought about this, the atmosphere that we live in. We live in a negative world, don't we? You listen to the average conversation. It's too hot. I'm too cold. It's too humid. Where's the humidity? I'm too fat. I'm too skinny. You know, everybody up and down, in and out. You watch the news. It's negative. Wars and rumors of wars. The economy's up. Now it's down. Gas prices are high. And they're, well, they're always high here, apparently. But anyway, I mean, negative news all over the place. And a lot of people are walking around like a spiritual Eeyore. They got their lips pooched out, their shoulders drooped, the lightning's flashing above their head. I mean, they're a negative Nancy all the time, like God's not on his throne. And it's because they're focused on the news more so than the Word of God and forgot we're on the winning side. But can I tell you, the world we live in can rob you of your fire. I thought about this. Uh, afflictions can steal your fire. I mean, you go through that valley, you go through those trials like the preacher preached on this morning, and you struggle through life at times, and if we're not careful, that can steal our fire. Uh, activity. Did you know it's possible to be busy serving God and not even be in love with, not even being in love with God? You can work a bus route and not be on fire. You can knock doors for Jesus and not be on fire. You can preach a sermon and not be on fire. You can teach a Sunday school class and the fire for God not be burning. And if we're not careful, we get this thing down to clockwork and forget that love for God that we're supposed to have. And we can lose our fire just because we're so busy in the work of the ministry. I thought about this, AWOL brethren, people who used to be in the battle and now they've quit on God. That can rob you of your fire for serving God. Sometimes we put a lot of faith in man. Can I say, thank God for heroes, but we don't make idols out of anybody. We serve God, amen. We love God. He's the one who's deserving of that throne. And a lot of times people fall and people fail and that can rob you of your fire for serving God. Can I say that we've got to be careful to maintain that excitement, that zeal, that uh, not apathy, if you will, but that 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 all in, that fire for serving God with our life. All the time I hear it. I like your fire. I like your zeal. And I want to say, I wish you'd get some of it. I love the Apostle Paul. He's one of my favorite personalities in the Bible. I think it's because when I read about his life, I feel like I see myself in the life of the Apostle Paul to an extent. He didn't get saved at an early age. He was saved on the road to Damascus. He was a mean man, a cruel man, a hateful man, but he was changed by the grace of God. I don't know about you, but I remember the day when I had a head-on collision with the grace of God as well. And I thank God for that Damascus Road kind of experience where I got changed from the inside out. Not a new suit of clothes on the outside, but a new man on the inside. Here in Acts chapter 27, Paul is on a boat headed to Rome. Now, Paul is not on a pleasure trip. Paul is a prisoner. Paul has appealed unto Caesar, and he's en route to that destination. Now, as you start to read in Acts chapter 27, we find that at first, the ship sails calmly. In fact, they find a place near Crete to put the ship in harbor. In verse 13, there's something I want us to notice before we move on. The Bible says that they supposed they'd gained their purpose. Now, what it is is they checked the weather. They looked at the report and they thought, well, the weather seems in our favor, so they supposed it was time to set sail. Now, let me say this. 
You always make a bad decision when you live by supposition and not by the will of God. When you live by feelings and not according to the will of God for your life, they set sail. And no sooner had they left that safe harbor that a storm arises on the sea. Now, I'm not talking about a casual storm, not just a sprinkle, but I mean a tempestuous storm, a Eurachlodon, the Bible calls it, where the wind begins to whip and the waves begin to rise and the ship that they're in is tossed back and forth in the water. So much so is that boat uh, uh, tossed at sea, the Bible says they couldn't control it and had to just let that ship drive. Now, I'm thinking these men are probably scared to death. 276 individuals, no control over the situation. They're at the mercy of the water. They begin to take the tackling and they throw it overboard. They have to let down the sails and just let themselves be driven with the violence there of the wind and the waves. And in the midst of all that, they look up. They can't see the sun in the day. They don't see the stars or the moon at night. And they thought all hope that they should be saved was taken away. But thank God, parenthetically, Paul said, there stood by me this night. Amen. The angel of the Lord. He said, I belong to him and he belongs to me. And I had a presence and a peace in the storm. And he said, we're going to make it through and be all right. Aren't you glad as a Christian that we have a peace that passes all understanding? I'm glad we have a person. We have a presence. We have that peace that stands with us in the storms of life. The Bible says that they're tossed in this storm for some 14 days. They'd been on this boat so long they hadn't even eaten anything for two weeks. Now we can tell Paul was a Baptist preacher because Paul quickly uh, organizes a fellowship. And he says, fellows, we got to eat something. So we know he's a Baptist. The men take something to eat. The next day, the Bible says they see a place where two seas met together. Their plan is to run the ship there and, and to try to anchor their ship. The Bible tells us that as they take the ship and they veer to this place where these two seas meet together, that the front part of the ship begins to get lodged, probably in a sandbar, under the surface of the water. The back part of the boat is now exposed to the violence of the waves. There it is. Picture it with me. The back of that ship out of the water. The waves are bludgeoning the wood. The wood begins to creak and crack, and suddenly the wood gives way to the pressure of the water, and the boat breaks in hundreds of pieces. The first thought is, let's kill all these men. They're prisoners anyway. But the goodness of God protected his preacher on board the ship. So the Bible says they began to swim for it. I don't know how they swam. They might have backstroke, doggy paddle. I don't know. But they began to swim to the island. Some floated on broken pieces of the ship. Now here's these men. Think about it. They've been in a storm for two weeks. They've been soaked to the bone, cold, scared to death, beaten about, tossed to and fro, had eaten very little. And now they've got to swim to an island. They swim to this island, and all that island is full of barbarous people. They don't know, but what they might be the menu for dinner. Who knows? They arrive on that island, and here's how I see it. 275 men lying in the sand. Can I get four or five of you guys to help me? How about the front row? You all come help me. I think you'll be perfect for this. I want you to find a spot on these steps and lay down like you're tired. Just do like you're doing in the pew, but do it up here in front of everybody. All right, so anyway, look at this. I mean, good night. Perfect. Just like your parents. Oh, anyway, uh, here it is. All right, for 275 men, they're all beached out. I mean, here on the sand, they're tired, they're weary, they've eaten very little. I mean, look at them, they look horrible. 
I mean, horrible. I mean, here they are lying in the sand. And I'm thinking, man, that's what I'd be doing. Tossed to and fro, soaked to the bone, beaten by the waves, tossed about there in the water. And here's a man off in the distance. You see him there in your mind? There's 275 men wrapped up in themselves. 275 men taking care of their needs. 275 men resting because they've been through a storm, been in the battle, and they're taking care of themselves. But there's an old man off in the background. Here's this old man. He's kind of bent over, not very good looking. I mean, poor eyesight. He's walking in the background, and he goes over to the wood line and picks a stick up and takes it back. And he lays it on that fire. And they're all huddled around it. And here he goes back, and he gets another stick. And he brings it back, and he lays it on the fire. And then he goes back, and he gets another stick. Snake bites his hand. He shakes it off. I'd have preached on that. But anyway, and he brings it back, and he lays it on the fire. I'd like to interview that old man. What in the world? Who is this man? I'd like to say, sir, what's your name? I'm Paul. Paul. Paul, how old are you? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly old. Okay, well, what are you doing? I've been on a boat for two weeks. You mean with those fellows down there? Yeah, with those fellows down there. Man, they look awful. I agree. But anyway, I mean, aren't you tired? Haven't you been through the same storm? Aren't you just as worn out? Why in the world are you gathering sticks while they're sitting in the sand? And here's what I think you'd say. You see those men there? If that fire goes out, they might die. If that fire goes out, they might lose hope. If that fire goes out, they might quit and their faith might wane. They depend on that fire to keep burning. But Paul, aren't you tired? Yes, I'm tired. I'm just as tired as they are. I'm just as cold as they are. I'm just as worn out as they are, but I had to get to the point where I put myself on the back burner for the sake of the multitude. I'd like to be resting. I'd like to take a break, but they depend on that fire and I can't wait on them to add their stick, but by the grace of God, I can add mine. I'm going to get a stick and lay it on the fire, get another stick and lay it on the fire. And Paul made sure that fire didn't go out. You guys can sit down. Thank you for looking like you do in the pew up here on the steps. I appreciate it. Here's what I'm trying to preach tonight. The average person is too dependent upon other people to make them want to serve God. We have got to graduate from that level of childhood Christianity to adult Christianity where we don't have to have an attaboy, good preaching, good singing, I like your hair today, what a casserole, just to serve Jesus. Hello, we had to get to that point where we love God enough, have enough truth deep down inside of us, where we serve God anyhow. Nobody stirred up Noah to serve God. Nobody stirred up David to serve God. Nobody stirred up Jeremiah to serve God. Nobody, we've kind of gotten conditioned. We have to have a like on our Facebook or a favorite on our tweet or a handshake at the back door to serve Jesus. Can I say that's not the way it's supposed to be? Because here's what I found out. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Well, thank God for your Sunday school class, but not everybody sees you teaching it. But thank God he sees you teaching it. Thank God for your bus route. We don't always get to see the work and the labor, and it's a lot of it that you put in on your bus route, but listen, he sees the labor. We don't get to see the work in the nursery. How many want to say praise God right there? I don't believe in purgatory, but we do have nurseries. But anyway, um, we don't see that, ladies, but he does. And we better get to the point, listen, if I depended upon the average church, the average church member to get me excited about preaching... I'd have quit yesterday. Hello? You think I wait till I get here to get like this? No. I'd act just like y'all do. 
No, I'm just kidding. I mean, just as depressed? No. So what has to happen? Here it is. You have to have something on the inside of you. You go to the average independent Baptist church with me in America, and these other preachers tell you the same thing. Can I tell you something? Here it is. I show up for church. Service starts at 7 o'clock. I get there about 15 till. Nobody's there. No lights on. Doors locked up. Nobody's there. About one after seven, they start rolling in. Sometimes they look at it and say, is that meeting this week? You know? They get in there and start their service, and they start singing victory in Jesus like their dog just got run over before church. The preacher gets in the pulpit, and he tells you about how bad it is, how hard it is, how much they're in debt, and all these things, you know? And this is Brother Cooper, hope you can be a blessing to us. You look back there from your seat on the platform and sister so-and-so's on Facebook, brother so-and-so's snoring, grandma so-and-so's clipping her toenails with her foot on the back pew. <laughs> they get to the special singing and they say, hey, anybody got a song? Anybody want to sing tonight? Come on, somebody surely wants to sing. Nobody wants to sing? Well, I didn't plan to sing, but I'll sing if you... And then they stand up with like a three-inch, three, or five-inch three-ring binder full of sheet music and CDs. Now, I didn't plan to sing tonight, but if you need a singer, I guess I'll try to sing. And then they take a 20-minute walk back to the sound room, give them their soundtrack for their special, take their 20-minute walk back. Now, don't y'all listen to how I sing it. You listen to the words. I'm say, no, we're going to listen to how you sing it. If you can't sing, then don't volunteer yourself. Come on now. Don't listen to how I preach or whatever. But anyway. And she'll say, now I just want to say, no, he didn't ask you to preach. He asked you to sing. But anyway, then they'll start the soundtrack. I think it's number seven. They'll hit number seven. It'll start. No, that ain't it either. Try number 10. That's it. And they'll get halfway through the first verse and mess up. They start that again. I want to say, hey, if I mess up in my sermon, start, I'm going to start that again. <laughs> then they'll look at me and say, Brother Cooper, come be a blessing to us. I'll say, no, I want to go to the house. So here's what's had to happen. I had to get some truths that I can look at, think about, meditate on, that keep me in the zone, if you will, when it comes to serving God. Let me give them to you shotgun style real quick tonight. Number one, I think about the fact that I'm saved, and it keeps my fire burning. I don't know about you, but it kind of stirs me up that I'm not going to hell tonight. I can sit there in a service. The singing might stink. The crowd might be low. Everybody else might look like they're miserable to be there. But when I think about the fact I'm ready to meet God, amen, washed in his blood, a child of God, name written down the Lamb's book of life, can I tell you something? I just feel a little bit like having church, amen? It kind of gets me on fire for serving God. I don't know, maybe I ought not be so excited about the fact you'll never see hell, never touch hell, never smell hell, never taste hell, never got a mansion on. No, if I was you, I'd be real quiet tonight. Calm down, calm down. It's not like you're going to live only as long as God does. We're saved. You remember the day you got born again? Well, I just don't feel like working the bus route. But I thought you were saved. I just don't feel like teaching today. But you're saved. I really don't feel like singing. But I thought you were saved. I don't want to preach. But I thought you were saved. You mean church on Sunday night? But I thought you have been saved. Go back to the place where he reached way down for you. And I'll tell you what happens. That fire starts to burn on the inside. I'm going to heaven, man. I want to serve God with my life. I'm on the winning side. Saved. Number two, I think about the fact there's people who need to get saved. You know, all the time there's people around us that need to get born again. And I sure would hate for a lost person's first encounter with a Christian to be a dead one. Hello. A few years ago, about three years ago, 
my wife was about ready to have the baby, and it was in the month of December. It was on New Year's Eve. And every year I was scheduled to preach a teen retreat in the Okefenokee Swamp. Have you ever been there before? I was going to say, if you have, then that means you've done something illegal. But anyway, the Okefenokee Swamp is where you bury bodies when nobody knows that they're dead. But anyway, I was scheduled to preach a teen retreat down there. And I went every year, preached for a good friend of mine. But that year I was a little bit discouraged because my wife, we'd been praying for a baby for so long. And I was in a hotel room on New Year's Eve, and I was in bed by 9 o'clock on New Year's Eve. Talk about a party animal. There I was. I mean, New Year's Eve by myself in a hotel room. And you better believe I started to think, what an idiot. What are you doing? Why in the world are you doing this? Your wife's at home. Better have a baby. You're in a hotel room by yourself. What in the world are you thinking? And can I tell you something? I got discouraged. And I started thinking, I don't know if this is where it's at or not. Been praying about this. God blessed us. I don't even rethink this thing. And I went to the service on Monday night, and man, I was preaching to them, and they looked at me like I had three eyeballs. You know what I mean? Nobody moved, dead or in a hammer, nothing. No liberty. I got in the vehicle and was driving back down that long, sandy road back to where my hotel room was, and I called my wife and said, listen, I think I'm going to quit. This isn't worth it anymore. I mean, I don't know. I want to be home with you. I'm going to see the baby all the time. I, I don't understand what's going on here. And she just said, well, we'll just pray about it. I went back the next day, and I preached in the morning, and it was the same thing. I thought, man, this isn't all it's cracked up to be. What in the world? I went back on that night, and I preached on hell as hard as I could. You say, well, you're in the spirit? Not at all. But anyway, I just preached on hell as hard as I could. Nobody moved. Nobody moved. I called her again all discouraged. I thought, it's not worth it. What in the world? I was in this little old block building. I mean, with mold on the walls. I was telling her the ceiling fan swirled like this. I thought, I'm going to get decapitated while I preach. (laughs) They got mosquitoes bigger than chihuahuas down there. I was like, man, that, that mosquito just carried an alligator off. But anyway, it's just horrible. <laughs> I preached on hell. Nobody moved. I went back to my hotel room so discouraged. Just didn't feel like it. I drove back the next morning. Didn't even know what I was going to preach. I was hoping God would give me something or Google one. But anyway, I was headed back to the, uh, the camp to preach. And I got out of the vehicle and was walking toward that building. And the youth pastor from a church walked up to me and said, Brother Cooper, I want to talk to you about your message last night. I said, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. Wait a minute, he said, I want to talk to you. He said, you preached on hell last night. And he said, I couldn't sleep in my cabin. He said, I was wrestling with it all night. He said, I got the pastor and I told the pastor, said, I didn't know I was saved. He said, the pastor led me to Christ last night in my cabin. I said, would you please tell that this morning in the service? And he got up in the pulpit before the service even started, really just at the beginning of the service, and he gave his testimony about what happened. And eight teenagers got up and walked, came forward to the altar and got saved. I got in that truck, I shut the door, and I went, Woo! I called my wife, and I said, Honey, you'll never believe it. She said, What? I said, Don't listen to what I said yesterday or the day before. I said, Man, I, I said, I don't even know how it happened, but I got out of the truck, and so-and-so said he got saved last night. Eight other people got saved last night. I said, I'm not here to retire. I'm here to re-enlist. I said, There's somebody who needs to get born again. And can I say the same thing's true in, my, in your life, just like it is in my life. Everywhere you go, every single day, there's somebody who needs to hear the gospel get born again, and they don't need a dead, cold, casual Christian. They need somebody excited on fire about serving. God. Keep the fire burning. Grab a stick. Number one, the fact you're saved. Grab a stick. Number two, the fact that somebody else needs to get saved. Number three, I thought about this. There's a compassing witness all the time. Book of Hebrews says, wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. That means all the time, I believe those in heaven, it's like the grandstands of glory. They can look down on us and they're cheering us on. Finish well. Don't you quit. Keep serving God. It'll be worth it all. Can I say every one of you here tonight, if you're saved, you didn't get there on your own. 
There's no self-made men or women in here tonight. We're all turtles on a fence post. Somebody put you where you are. Somebody prayed for you. Somebody preached to you. Somebody paid for you to go someplace. Somebody brought you, drug you, whatever, to church. And some of those people are on the other side. Wouldn't you hate to... I'd hate to be a quitter and run into John the Baptist. Well, he'd say, how'd you do, brother? Well, I didn't quite make it. Why? They were saying something bad about me on Facebook. Brother, they cut my head off. You know what I mean? What? <laughs> Hello? My study Bible that I keep at my house was given to me by my grandparents. They're both in heaven now. I preached both of their funerals. And uh, I remember my mom had asked me to do my grandma's funeral. She was, she was about ready to pass away. She had cancer. She had a brain tumor, cancer in her body. And uh, she'd lost her eyesight. And my wife actually moved in with them and sort of helped to take care of them in the last little while, year or so of her life. And we were on our way up to take a vacation, just me and her up uh, in the uh, Pittsburgh area. And I got a phone call from my mother. said, Mamma's was about ready to pass away. And uh, so we turned around and went back. And I remember we went to their house there, and uh, I walked in that little ranch brick house that my grandpa built. And Papa had dementia, and he was sitting in his recliner there. And he, he didn't remember things real well, but he always called me preacher. He never called me by my name after I surrendered to preach. He always just said, hey, preacher. I walked in there, and he said, hey, preacher, how you doing? I said, I'm doing good, Papa. How about you? He said, I'm doing pretty good. He said, I'm waiting on your grandmother. He had no idea. She was in the back bedroom in a hospice bed. They had just taken her off of a ventilator. She's about to pass away. I said, well, let me go back and check on her. So my wife and I, we walked back there, and we got to that room, and in that room was my mother and her sister and brothers and uh, her pastor and all of them. We, we were all in that room, and Mamma was just skin and bones, you know, cancer had eaten her body up unresponsive really and I watched them because I thought you know one day I'm gonna to have to stand if Jesus doesn't come back where they stand and I watched them and we heard feet coming down the hallway and it was a shuffling footsteps so we knew it was Papa and I'd heard people talk about this but I saw it happen when he came into that room it's like God gave him his mind back he could think clearly he had been a preacher before he'd gotten dementia and he was a preacher again he stepped in that room and he Saw my grandmother there, and he walked up to her, and I remember it, his hand was all black on the back from his medicine, just blood clotting, bruising and things, and it shook a little bit, and he reached his hand down, and her hair was white as my, t as, as my dress shirt, and he pushed her white hair back off her forehead and had tears running down his face, and he kissed her on the forehead. If she'd have lived one more week, they would have been married 60 years. He kissed her on the forehead, and he said, Honey, you don't feel good, do you? And of course, she didn't respond. She was about to pass away. And he looked at her and said something that if, if I hadn't seen it, I probably wouldn't believe it because it doesn't sound like it's something somebody would think to say. But he looked at her and he said, Honey, if you want to go home without me, you can. He said, Because if I don't see you in the morning, I'll meet you on the shores of glory. And he looked across her body at me and said, Preacher, would you please say something? And I was getting ready to open my mouth and my uncle started to sing, There'll be no sorrows there, no more burdens to bear. No more sickness, no pain, no more parting over there. Amen. And then we got to the course, what a day that shall be when my Jesus I shall see. As we sung about it, Mamma got to live it. And she stepped out of a body of cancer, amen, on the streets of pure gold and got to see Jesus face to face. About a year or two after that, Pat Paul went to heaven and preached his funeral. Tonight while I'm preaching... I used to call them when I was traveling. My wife was living with them, and, and sometimes Mamma would get on the phone. She'd say, where are you preaching tonight? And I'd tell her what state I was in. 
And she'd say something to me like, well, make sure you preach the Bible. Can I tell you, I think there's a couple of grandparents on the other side tonight that are rooting for a grandson to finish well. And sometimes when I feel like quitting and I feel like going to the house and I just don't want to give it my all, I think about the fact, hey, if nobody else wants to hear it, they want to hear it. And they're rooting for me this evening. Grab that stick and then last of all, keep your fire burning. Your course has a finish. Grab the stick. You know, one of these days we'll all have an ending to our race. One day we'll preach for the last time. You'll sing for the last time. You'll give for the last time. We'll gather in this place for the last time. I don't want my last sermon to be a dead sermon. I don't want my last congregational singing to be half-baked singing. I was preaching for a man in Georgia, and he's much older than I am. He's just about 90 years old, and I was preaching that night, and I mentioned Lester Roloff. As much as I can, I try to mention that generation when I preach because I want that generation to know where we came from. And I was talking about Lester Roloff in the message and things, and after the service, he and I were fellowshipping, and, and he, was, he, he was eating one of those tomato sandwiches, and I don't know why people like those. I just don't understand that. I know that's probably sacrilegious, and I shouldn't have said it online, but I don't like them. But anyway, um, he, he said, I knew Brother Roloff. He said, in fact, he preached here for me, and he said he took me on an airplane ride. He said, he said, I never should have got in that airplane. He said, we were flying, and I said, Brother Rolf, I think that's a bunch of turkeys down there. And he said, let's go see. You know, and he banked the plane. <laughs> he said, I could have plucked a tail feather off of one of those turkeys. He looked at me and said, I miss those men. He said, Brother Cooper, let me tell you something. He said, I wish I was your age. He said, my mind wants to do it, but my body can't. He looked at me and said, please don't waste it while you've got it. And can I tell you, when you don't feel like it, why don't you think about this? Don't waste it while you've got it. Because one day you'll want it, and you can't. There are people watching tonight that wish they could be here. They love to sing in the choir, sit in a pew, do whatever they could do around the church, but physically they can't. We can. We've got to keep our fire burning. I see that old man in the background, 275 men resting, concerned with themselves, can I say if that's the attitude we have, we're going to be up and down at best. We've got to get to that point where we don't depend upon anything on the outside. Now, thank God for encouragement. We've got to encourage one another. But we've got to have enough truth on the inside that we can go get, grab one of those truths when we need it, throw it on our heart, and say, I think I'll just serve God a little bit longer. The fire is your responsibility. I'm going to pray. If you need to come tonight, maybe your heart, maybe you've grown a little cold tonight. You've been looking too much on the outside and forgetting that God's on his throne. Why don't you come re-enlist tonight? Hey, think about the fact you're saved. Somebody needs to get saved. Think about the fact the saints in glory, they're cheering for you to finish while Jesus is there. What about this? One day we'll not be able to do this anymore. So let's give it all we've got until Jesus comes. Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.